Matthew chapter 3. Our text this morning is verse 1. I'll read 1 to 5. In those days came John the Baptist, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Isaiah 43. And the same John had his raiment of camel's hair and a leathern girdle about his loins, and his meat was locusts and wild honey. Then went out to him Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region round about Jordan. Father, as we begin this third chapter of Matthew, a good number of us have a sensing of the significance of the relationship between John and the Lord Jesus. Some of us already have a good sensing of the prophetic base of the Old Testament scriptures that forecast the coming of the Holy One as preceded by a messenger that will announce his arrival. We pray that as we work through this extended section of Matthew's gospel presentation, that the Spirit of God would be our teacher, that above all things we would come away with a better understanding of the blessedness and the majesty of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We also pray that you would help us during this period of time in which we study in this chapter uh, to be benefited by the faithfulness of John as your special servant, fulfilling a unique and special role in the first century setting in which he was placed. Help us then today as we begin to respond to the text for the benefit of our own souls. We pray that the Spirit of God would take the Word of God to each heart in personalized ministry so that needs can be met according to the ebb and flow of life. Thank you for each one that is here. We ask your blessing upon us in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Don and Doris Fisher, they saw a gap in the retail clothing business. They knew that nearly everyone in America bought at least one pair of blue jeans. And they also knew that finding a pair of blue jeans that fit is anything but easy for many people. So in 1969, with the simple idea of selling jeans that fit, they opened The Gap. Millions in sales thereafter, and of course having a nationwide business footprint, we can say that recognizing The Gap has paid them rich dividends. And likewise this morning, we want to recognize the nearly 30-year gap 
between the end of Matthew 2 and the opening of Matthew 3, believing that it will pay us rich dividends. Of course, not of the monetary sort, but dividends in insight and understanding of Jesus as the Christ. It's good to be reminded from time to time that in the original text, uh, no chapter divisions, no verse divisions. And so as you read out of chapter 2 and the mention there that Jesus would be called a Nazarene, immediately you have these words, in those days came John. And in between the word Nazarene and the word in, in our English text, is about 30 years. That's a significant gap to recognize as you study the text. Matthew 2.23 tells us the Messiah as a very young child settled down in the home of Joseph and Mary while working in the, in the village of Nazareth. Jesus thereby known as a Nazarene, though born in Bethlehem. Now the fact that he lived in Nazareth would be used of men against him. Jesus the, the Nazarene. Is the Messiah supposed to be born in Bethlehem? Yep. They didn't even know that he was. It's an amazing thing that people run and publish what they don't know. And, of course, they have help because our adversary loves that kind of thing. As Spurgeon said it, uh, you know, uh, Satan will make a rumor go all the way around the world before truth has had a chance to put on its galoshes. <laughs> and that's about the truth of it. Nonetheless, Matthew 3, 1 opens by introducing us to John the baptizer and insisting upon the fact that we begin now to recognize that wonderful connection between John and Jesus. That means that between chapter 2 and 3, Matthew jumps over a number of significant recorded events as they are given to us in detail by other gospel accounts, including... Uh, additional details of the settlement in Nazareth, uh, the aspect of, uh, of uh, the young Christ uh, uh, in his, uh, in his uh, uh, growing up years, at least one little glimpse into that. I absolutely love the insight of my dead buddy James Stalker uh, in this regard, who says concerning uh, uh, so much silence in this 30-year period of time, uh, he says, where God is silent, curiosity is strong. And then he uses that concept of humanity that where we don't know things, we get very curious about things. And he uses that as a basis to, to explain why there were so many apocryphal gospels written. Because people uh, were not content with the uh, information in the biblical text. And so therefore, uh, they decided to write things and to teach things and to preach things of which they purely were uh, 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 con uh, conjecture, uh, purely a sense of uh, imagination. And indeed, man's ima imagination shore, uh, soars where factual details are indeed thin. And uh, after Christ is born, settled in Nazareth, Matthew 2.23, until John the baptizer, uh, Matthew 3.1, in that gap of 30 years, there is very, very few things told us about uh, the earthly life of our Lord or his family. Uh, we do know from Dr. Luke of a single incident of record when the Lord was in his bar mitzvah, 
year, bar, sun, mitzvah, law. Your bar mitzvah year, if you're a Jewish boy, comes at the age of 12. You are, uh, according to the uh, understanding of uh, Jewish rabbis, uh, a person reaches the age of accountability before God themselves at the age of 12. And so therefore, uh, they have their bar mitzvah uh, recognition, uh, which of course is uh, a little party, and uh, that party really uh, recognizes quite a sobering thing. And that sobering thing is, is that at that age and at that time, that individual stands responsible uh, individually before God on their own apart from mom and dad. That before that time in the Jewish mindset of things, the child is somewhat under uh, the authority of uh, the parent's responsibility in relationship to God. But that after bar mitzvah, that uh, they are fully responsible uh, for God, to God, uh, themselves as an individual. And so uh, I think that is significant uh, when you have uh, in this 30-year gap of time between the settling of the Lord's family in Nazareth and uh, the introduction of John the baptizer, uh, you have the aspect of, uh, uh, of uh, the Lord's bar mitzvah year and the traveling uh, of his family, his earthly family, uh, to worship in Jerusalem. But that's it. That's the only thing we have of 30 years. The scholars have entitled the Messianic Record Gap as the silent years. 30 silent years. I would assert that God's wisdom is uniquely manifest in what he tells us. And God's wisdom is likewise uniquely manifest in what he does not tell us. I believe that the recording gap helps us to better keep the main thing as the main thing upon which hangs the destiny of our souls. God is faithful, ever faithful, ever true, and ever consistent. And we have in the record of the scriptures everything that we could possibly need to make up our minds about Christ and to live a life of dependency upon the Holy Spirit. Matthew concludes that uh, uh, we have here uh, uh, an important uh, uh, next thing after the information of the settling of the Lord's family in Nazareth, and the next thing is, surprisingly, John the baptizer. Uh, Matthew continues consistently to present to us the case of Christ, by references to Old Testament prophecies fulfilled. And it is clear at verse 3 that Matthew now has Isaiah 40 and verse 3 in mind as he writes of the adult John-Jesus connection. Isaiah 40, Malachi 3 become two passages, we'll look at them in coming weeks, but two passages that play large in understanding the John-Jesus connection that comes right out of the prophetic reality of especially Isaiah and Malachi. Now today we're going to pick apart that first verse where interestingly we find four important pieces of information 
concerning this particular record uh, and the John Jesus uh, connection. Again, verse 1, in those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Let's note Matthew's reference to that moment in time, that moment in historical time. Uh, you have the opening phrase, in those days came. Now, it'd be easy for us to think about time in relationship to the clock or the calendar. It would be interesting uh, to chase, as it were, the, uh, the uniqueness of the calendar adjustments that are necessary uh, for us as modern individuals to appropriate correctly historical records of time. Uh, with the necessary cal calendar adjustments, we can say that Herod the Great uh, died in 4 B.C., that Archelaus, as named at the end of chapter 2, Herod's son, of course, ruled in Judea from 4 B.C. until 6 A.D. And it is very clear that Messiah's earthly family was settled in Nazareth shortly after the transfer of power from the wicked father to his wicked son in 4 B.C. And that allows scholars to bring the date in relationship to our modern calendar, the date of the Lord's birth, as being uh, about 5 B.C. Now, if you don't think about such things and you don't adjust for such things as regards to differences in calendars, then you might just assume that, that Christ is zero. <laughs> and uh, everything before Christ is, is on that, going that way and everything after Christ is going that way. And that certainly is, is the uh, intention uh, of the modern calendar uh, and the references B.C. and A.D. But nonetheless, uh, as we uh, make adjustments for uh, different calendars uh, from different peoples at different times, uh, we can say that uh, uh, Christ was born about 5 B.C. Now, while this is noted, this moment in time is noted of settling in Nazareth at the end of chapter 2, Matthew is not compelled at all of the Spirit to develop that thought or even to give us the thoughts that Dr. Luke gave us about Jesus at the age of 12, uh, Matthew is rather immediately compelled of the Spirit of God to jump to the account of time in the appointment of God the Father for the mission of God the Son to commence on earth for the purpose of human redemption. And so you go immediately from the statement of the Lord's family being settled in Nazareth, you go from that immediately to the jump of the introduction of John, so that you can make the John-Jesus connection, and that you can uh, appropriate the aspect of the fact that what we're dealing with now is the appointment of God the Father for the mission of God the Son to commence on earth for the purpose of human redemption. During those 30 years before the adult ministry of John and Jesus merged in holy fulfillment of prophecy, our Lord, of course, would have gone through all the stages of a godly preparation. Again, listen to the insightful statement of my dead buddy, James Stalker. Unpretentious 
as the external aspects of the Lord's life at Nazareth were, it was, below the surface, a life of intensity, variety, and grandeur. Beneath its silence and obscurity, there went on all the processes of growth which issued in the magnificent flower and fruit to which ages now look upon with wonder. Every time I see my grandkids, it's almost impossible not to say, what happened to you? It was only six months. It was only a year ago that I saw you, and yet you're that much taller. You're that much bigger. You're that much smarter. You're that much more capable. And, of course, as I see them going up in size and up in strength and up in intelligence, I quite perceive that the man in the mirror is going the other way. Well, I had a sobering moment at the doctor this last week when they measured my height. And I'm shrinking. I'm shrinking. I'm shrinking. So I'm just saying that you and I adjust uh, or should adjust to the fact in life all the time that things happen, and we would say they happen normally. Uh, you know, uh, uh, raising kids is not like rearing rabbits. It's not a matter of, uh, uh, you know, just pellets in and pellets out. It's a matter of growth and development and mental stimulation and all that kind of, And all of those normal processes were a part of the Lord Jesus' life. And God, in his wisdom, reserves that family life for that family. Do you understand that God would have you reserve some of your family life for your family? Not everything in your family ought to be promoted. Not everything in your family ought to be known. Not everything in your family, in your marriage, ought to be forecast. Well, I know I've quit preaching God in the Meadowland, but I'm just telling you that there's a real danger in the day in which we live of people not recognizing the blessedness of of divinely established walls of privacy. And God has indeed held back from us those early days, not because there's anything there of our Lord that would discourage or dissuade us, but simply because, may I say it kindly, none of your business. None of your business. And you and I need to be comfortable, especially when God says, none of your business. Business. But again, Matthew is compelled of the Spirit to move deliberately to the days of heavenly mission on earth begun. The phrase, in those days, are grammatically defined by the coming sighted. In those days came. Now, the word came is not the simple action word that we might expect. It is an intensive verb that speaks of an event. It speaks of a public appearance of the official variety. This word befits the introduction of the man who will speak on God's behalf and precede the Lord himself in kingdom preparation as promised. John the Baptist, came. He came as a herald. He came as a representative with an official word in this moment of time. 
And so we have the time-related words in those days. Those words are uniquely connected to the verb came. And not so much connected to what came before in 2.23 concerning the settling of the family in Nazareth. So there's a phenomenal shift of mental focus here as we open the third chapter with the announcement that J.B. came. The second thing that I want you to note here is, of course, something about that man, John the Baptizer, God's man, John the Baptizer. Most of you are fully aware that the entitlement as Baptist has no direct connection to the local churches known as Baptist in our day, except for the fact that the Baptizer and today's Baptist just like here, dip and dunk. Uh, the uh, word baptizer, the word baptist, is simply a word that means to dimp, dip, or to dunk. And, uh, and uh, back in the first century, uh, its use in secular writing uh, primarily refers to uh, the garment industry and dyeing clothes, where that they would take pieces of... Uh, of woven uh, cloth, and they would dip and duck them into the aspect of the bath of, uh, of color uh, so as to make uh, pretty things for people to wear. And most of the uh, references to uh, bapto uh, and to baptizo, which is the verb, uh, most of the references that are found uh, in the Histrial Anacles of uh, the first century uh, have to do with uh, dipping a cloth in uh, colored water uh, to make pretty clothes. Nonetheless, uh, John is called the dipper. And, uh, and uh, he's called the dunker. Uh, and uh, because of the fact that uh, uh, the name Baptist has, uh, as a noun, come to mean something denominationally in our day uh, that uh, I would argue is a little bit unfortunate, but nonetheless, since that's true, uh, I have for a number of years now uh, based upon the plain grammar uh, of uh, John in reference to uh, the reference to uh, uh, dunking or or dipping, uh, I have uh, called him John the Baptizer, because that would be the point. Uh, he's not a Baptist as I'm a Baptist. He's not a Baptist as you are a Baptist. Uh, maybe he is. He's just engaged in the aspect of this nomenclature because of his relationship to dip and dunk. And so, therefore, we have deliberately chosen for many years now to call him John the Baptizer, not John the Baptist. Nonetheless, John was a unique individual in the will and plan of God. I like what F.B. Meyer says of him. He says that John was of singular glory, all his own. And uh, that's a good statement. I don't know that you couldn't say that about everybody. Uh, one of the things that scientists tell about snowflakes is that they are of singular glory all their own. One of the things that scientists tell us about stars is that they are of singular glory all their own. And uh, one of the things that I believe you can build a case for, at least in some sense, is that every individual is an individual before God all their own. 
and thereby it is important that we not just respond to God collectively or as a group, but that we all respond to God individually. But nonetheless, I know what F.B. Meyer is saying when he says that John the baptizer was of a singular glory all his own, because he was of a singular glory all his own, and not just in the usual sense in which we would apply that to every person, the dignity of every human life, but rather in the fact that God has something unique in regards to John as it relates to uh, the prophecies of the Old Testament concerning Messiah. John never performed any miracles. He was not particularly eloquent, and he ministered for a phenomenally brief period of time. How long have you been in that pastorate? Uh, you know, if you say, well, uh, 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 around three years, and then I was done, they would say, that's nothing. You didn't serve at all. Well, listen, John absolutely, absolutely gave it his all in the time that God gave him. And uh, you're going to have to do it, redo your thinking about the fact that every ministry that's a long ministry is a good ministry. Not necessarily some ministries are the best or very short. And John the baptizer's ministry was a very, very good ministry and a ministry of glory for God and the introduction of Christ. And yet, it's very short. Because it isn't about John. It's about the Lord Jesus. And so, therefore, uh, John's ministry was uh, brief and straightforward and uh, oftentimes rather blunt. Nonetheless, the John-Jesus connection is one of the very most important connections in the Scripture that you can see in order to glean something of the continuity of the Old Testament Scriptures in relationship to the New Testament Scriptures for the understanding that the Jewish prophets are directly used in order for the Bible reader to correctly identify Messiah. Matthew is going to help us see the John-Jesus connection as essential to our doctrinal and saving embrace. It is imperative that we not miss this connection. Uh, while we recognize that there was a significant gap of time uh, when the Old Testament record finished Malachi, and the New Testament record began. Uh, uh, while we recognize a gap of hundreds of years between those two revelatory uh, markers, uh, nonetheless it is true that one deliberately goes right into the other, and that the very last thing said in the Old Testament, and the very first thing said in the New Testament has to do with this John-Jesus connection. The John-Jesus connection is one of the most important connections between the Old Testament and the New Testament for seeing the continuity of the Scriptures and for ultimately being better convinced of the identity of the Lord's Christ. Now, the third thing that I would call your attention to in this verse has to do with uh, uh, his ministry, John the Baptizer's ministry. In those days came John the Baptist preaching. 
John's ministry is herein described by a single word, preaching. The word here refers to the work of an official Herod, a herald rather, uh, uh, as in, hear ye, hear ye. Uh, the Greek word that is used here for preach uh, means to officially publish on behalf of the king or on behalf of an emperor. The king, his herald, proclaims the word of the king. The herald does not proclaim his own word. He does not proclaim his own thinking. He does not just proclaim his own opinion. He rather proclaims the word of the king. And in this case, the official news out of heaven and the word of God, the king, as it is spoken in this moment of time to the Jewish nation. It is significant that while this church has stood on this property for a long, long time, it is significant that John the baptizer never preached here. John the baptizer, uh, baptizer never preached anywhere in America. He didn't preach anywhere in France. He didn't preach anywhere in England. He didn't preach anywhere in China. John the baptizer preached in a very, very little right there on the map. Just a little on the map. That's where he preached. That's it. For a little of time. So here's a of a preacher on a of time. John the baptizer. And yet, without the connection of this of a preacher, uh, you really miss something phenomenal about the Lord Jesus. John the baptizer is characterized by preaching. If you want to understand the nature of his ministry, you need to study the uniqueness of his preaching. Number four on our list of four things that can be gleaned from the first verse of Matthew chapter 3. In those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Of course, this fourth piece of information informs us of John's sphere of operation and location on the map. It tells us about that little of a thing. John is the official kingdom of God herald. He does not operate, nor is he located, as we might expect. We would not think to look for him naturally, where indeed he is to be found. We would think to look for him in the city of God. We would think to look for him on Zion. We would think to look for him in Jerusalem. But herein we are told that John the baptizer comes preaching and operating and located as in quote, the wilderness of Judea. Now, the question might be asked, what else could be found in the wilderness of Judea? And the answer is, nothing, really. It's like trying to find a place to eat in Elto. <laughs> you know, unless you're a drinker, there's nothing here for you. 
Uh, nonetheless, there would have been some uh, desert creatures. You probably could come across some snakes out there in the place where John preached. Uh, you could probably find some creepy crawlers. You might see the occasional fox or mole. The question might be also asked, who might you have seen in the Judean wilderness on an average day? And the answer is, you might have seen some small groups of travelers uh, that would be uh, uh, going somewhere and knowing that that was their shortest route uh, to their destination. But generally speaking, the wilderness was a hot by day and cold by night, solitary place. Yet, John preached there. Why? That's where God put him. Why? Because God does things in ways that we would never think to do. And God has the forerunner of Messiah begin his heralding mission, uh, uh, message and, and missionary endeavor, hear ye, hear ye, out in the Judean wilderness. The Judean wilderness in that day was the place where the word of God out of heaven could be heard. Why there? A number of reasons. But certainly one of the reasons had to do with the fact that the place you would think it would be heard, they no longer brought it. They no longer gave it. They were no longer interested in it. The place that you would think to be a place for God in his word, wasn't. And so the official Herod out of, herald out of heaven, I keep saying Herod, herald, the official herald out of heaven, John the baptizer, uh, launched his ministry in the Judean wilderness. That's a phenomenal thing to meditate upon. So in summary here, you have in this first verse a unique moment in time marked by a very unusual man with an unambiguous ministry in a very unlikely location on the Israeli map. And when you think about that introduction to John the baptizer from the pen of Matthew as spirit driven along, you can't help but think of statements in the scripture like Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, where Yahweh states through his prophet Isaiah, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. When you give pause to the great thing that God has done in Christ, and the way in which God went about to do it, and the way in which he acted to preserve the official record of it. And now in our hands, it becomes clear beyond every shadow of doubt that he, God, has not chosen the wisdom of this world, 
or the wise of this world to accomplish his eternal plan. I don't know about you, but based upon the reality on the ground for me, I'm very excited about that. I am very blessed by that. I'm very encouraged by that. The blessedness of the Lord Jesus has never been found at the bottom of a gold-covered barrel marked with the words religion. Nor is he best represented by men of popular fame among society's elites. As Samuel of old learned when seeking God's choice for an Israeli king long ago, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. John the baptizer was a man with a burning heart for God. And knowledge of John, our knowledge of John, as informed by this scripture, will lead us to a better knowing of the Lord Jesus. In the next few weeks, we will speak of John and continue to preach unto you the Lord Jesus. For this morning, I would just like to end by asking you if you hold membership in the fellowship of the burning heart. I didn't ask if you were a member of AARP. I'm not and don't ever plan to be. I did not ask you if you were a member of this church. I am. It'd be good if you were. But nonetheless, I'm asking if you are indeed a member of the fellowship of the burning heart. When I read of John the baptizer, I read of a man certainly unique in the will of God, in the plan of God for introducing Messiah. But above all, I read of a man that has a burning heart for God. John the baptizer believed God's promises. John the baptizer believed God's commands. And it's clear, once we get to John's preaching, he believed in God's threatenings. He not only believed in the promises, he believed in the threatenings of God. Do you realize that this world is under threat? And I am not talking on the anniversary of 9-11, of nations from overseas attacking America. I'm talking about the threat of God against all sinful men. The biggest problem humanity has is the wrath of God. Yet God has given us a blessed means, one means, one way of escape and relationship with him. And John is going to connect people to that guy, which is, of course, the Lord Jesus. 
But John the baptizer, as a man, is an individual that has a burning heart for God. And, of course, in my mind, as I'm beginning to go clickety-clack and think about biblical references, I can't help but think of those two disciples on the Emmaus Road after they were instructed by the Lord Jesus in the Scriptures, and they said, Did not our hearts burn within us while he, Jesus, opened unto us the Scriptures? Have you joined the fellowship of the burning heart for God And his word, his word sung, his word prayed, his word read, his word preached. Have you joined the fellowship of the burning heart? Oh, Father, help us as a congregation of people this morning have arts that are uniquely focused upon the Lord Jesus Christ with more than a casual curiosity concerning the truth of him, but indeed a burning in the inner man for the truth and the grace of Jesus Christ. May our responses bring you pleasure even as we praise you And thank you for the gift received in Jesus Christ. We pray today in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.